Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. So today I want us to turn our attention to the book of Matthew, and we're going to start in chapter 5. Uh, that's uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to process only the first few passages of, of Scripture. They're not all of them today, completely new series, although we're going to find some uh, consistency between the previous series and this one. And even though I've said Matthew chapter 5, I do want to draw your attention to the concept that we find in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Now, we have been producing and delivering content for Bible studies uh, online now for, it seems like, years, uh, but certainly since March. So I hope that you're keeping up with those for Sunday morning Bible studies. If you need information about which one to dive into and belong to, we can help you with that. On Wednesday nights, we've been doing the same thing. It airs each Wednesday night. You can watch it whenever, but that's when they're, that's when they're put on live. But uh, we've been working through the book of Ephesians on Wednesday night. And uh, this coming week is going to be this passage of Scripture. So I'm not going to talk about it a whole lot. But verse 10 specifically of Ephesians chapter 2 says, For we are, not will be, are, that's a present, that's a present position. And I think that is really, really important for this concept. We are His workmanship. Poiema is what that word means. Uh, it is uh, where we actually get our word poem. Uh, what the word actually means in Greek is that we were made directly by His hand. Uh, he fashioned us. He is our creator. We are His creation. It's something that was personally crafted individually. So when he says we are his craftsmanship, he would have said we are his creation if he were putting us all in one big pot. But he's not. He's talking to us as collective individuals. We are the fabric of his hands. We are woven together into a masterpiece, if you will. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in those good works. So we have two things at work here. We have who we are and we have what we do. We are representatives of the creative work, of the handiwork, of the masterpiece hand of God himself. But that's not all. Now, if we're not careful, we're going to live in a world that, that continually reinforces how good we are and how important we are, and how valuable we are. And we, we love the idea that we are God's handiwork. We are God's trophy. We are God's poem. We are His literary masterpiece. We love that idea. But, but God does, demands that we live in symmetry with who we are and what we do, what we accomplish. Faith, for instance, without works is dead. So there is this symmetry of who we are and what we do. In th this word is actually only used one other time in Scripture. We're in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, same author, different church. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. That's the word poema. So that the world is without excuse. What that means is we, along with the trees and the sky and the grass, things that can be viewed through a telescope and a microscope, we also are part of the testimony. Who we are and what we do is the, uh, the, the creative design of God. We are his craftsmanship. We should live lives to be a declaration of who created us. But we live in a day of individuality, of uniqueness, of everybody finding their own way, their own path, their own truth, their own self, their own identity. And I will, I will submit to you on the front end, this message today is an introduction. Now you know by way of introduction, they're usually a little bit harder to keep up with. Because there are some tenets and some... Uh, presuppositions that I'm going to offer us today that over the next few weeks will make a lot more sense. So I'm going to ask for you to be very patient and to, uh, to be diligent and attentive as we work our way through this incredibly timely and yet very difficult uh, introduction. So the Creator possesses us and that should be clearly seen as a testimony to the world around us. The world around us, apart from God, should be able to look at all of God's creation, including His handiwork, His workmanship, and be able to see the character and nature of the Creator, right? So the world should be able to look at us, at the church, and say, I have a better understanding of who God is because I know people who love Him. But I'm afraid we've lost that witness. We've lost that t testimony. We've lost that reputation. God is good in spite of us and in spite of our testimony. So we spoke about the importance of conflict last week. And uh, we will always have conflicts. We know that. Jesus even told us that in this world we will have trouble. But conflicts don't have to be a bad thing. You see, conflicts can actually help us reveal the kingdom. Now, I want you to listen to this very, very closely. And I'm going to do my very best to be succinct so that it makes sense by the end of the day. All conflicts can reveal his kingdom. We have conflicts because we have crises. We have real crisis and we have perceived crisis. We have shared crisis and we have personal crisis. And often we use these words interchangeably, crisis and conflict. Every crisis is a conflict. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, before he did any other teaching, he taught in Matthew chapter 5. He taught an incredibly powerful sermon. In fact, as Jesus taught and spoke for the rest of his ministry, it was to make understanding and application of everything that he taught here. In brief, the sermon that Jesus preaches in chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew explains to us actually how to avoid crisis in your life. Wait a minute, Pastor. You just said we were going to have crisis. Now I said we're going to have conflict. Conflict and crisis, though we use them interchangeably, are not the same thing. Christians should not be known for the crises that they experience throughout their life. There should not be crises in Christian's life, but there will be conflict. Okay? There will be conflict. There will be moments of decision. But the crises comes as a result of not knowing which way to go. 
That's what crisis means. Not knowing which way to go. There's a new crisis on every paper, in every city, in every country of the world. Turn on your news and there was a new crisis today. I'm not even sure what it was. There's crisis every. You know, crisis sales. Crises sell because we want to be informed. We want to know what's my opinion about a certain issue or what's my friend's opinion. What can I argue about or who can I have agreement with? Constantly, insatiably. We can't get enough. And for many, it's turned into a habit and an addiction. And so when there is not a crisis, we have to create one of our own making. The Me Too movement, mass shootings, fires, natural disasters. I'm not saying that these things don't exist. I'm saying that everywhere we turn, we don't know what to do. School shootings, nuclear threats. Not to mention things like abortion, divorce, suicide. Crisis everywhere you look. Crises comes as a result of conflict that we don't know right and wrong. And so conflict, when it arises, the church should be able to say, this way. But we failed. And so when we, as the ambassadors of the Creator Himself, don't know which way to go, it's no wonder we've lost our reputation. We don't deserve it. Every crisis has become a cause. Every cause has become a movement. Every movement has caused division. And that's exactly what conflict apart from right and wrong will always do. Create division. And if you think division comes from the Creator, it does not. We sometimes, I think we get in our mind that if we just solve the crisis... We can make the world a better place to live in. And so now there is a cancel culture movement. There is a woke movement because we want to just solve the cause. Solve the cause. But by the time we even get people on our team to solve the cause, there's another conflict of crises. Now listen, we will not have world peace by solving crisis. This was the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the only cure to crises. Kingdom principles will always be the remedy to the world's issues. Write this down. When we fight the world's issues with the world's cures, we will only see new fires pop up. Headlines change overnight. Our empathies are divided. We try to stay informed by scanning feeds, watching clips. We can't even watch the news anymore. We just watch clips of the news reading articles, but we don't read the real article, we read what somebody thought about the article. We don't want to miss out on the conversation, or we want to miss out on the conversation. Almost every conversation has become about crisis. Think about the things you talk about in your peer groups. What do you feel about? What do you think about? We gather people who agree with our side of the crisis to help us stay informed, or we listen to the reporters, the news outlets that suit our crisis. But tension mounts as we juggle work and relationships and responsibilities and the latest headlines. 
So overwhelmed, what do we do? Well, we lash out, we retreat, and we slowly, slowly grow numb. We either batten down the hatches or we live in fear. I mean, I don't want to speak a large rebuke, but I would say this isn't a time for us to grow paranoid and batten down the hatches. This is a time for us to get engaged in the gospel. Why are Christians retreating from the issues? Why are we giving fuel to the fire of the issues of our day? Some others, on the other hand, are quick to surrender. Oh, well. Well, how are, how are we supposed to absorb all of it? How, how could we possibly have a consistent view of all of it? Well, I don't know that we can unless we see that all the crises has a common denominator. And that is satanic forces that are here to steal, kill, and destroy us. Then we realize that the issue isn't the cause that we're fighting. The issue is not our creator, but Satan himself. That, that is where the battle belongs. Here's a great question. Who gets to determine when it's over? Have you ever thought about that? Who gets to say that crisis is now over? I will tell you, it's not the people in crisis because crises sell. There's always going to be another one. So if, if we allow the people who are pandering to us to, to tell us when we can go back to normal, when we can get our minds right, when we can whatever it is that we've been limited to do, when we're supposed to think about this or that, they're never going to tell us it's okay for two reasons. They're not in control and it's never going to be okay. So we have to figure it out for ourselves. And I'm not altogether angry about it, though it may seem that way. What I'm trying to say is we have got, as Christians, as a body, we have got to learn to ask different questions. Think about the times that Jesus, in the same culture that we are in, they would come up to Jesus and say, what do you feel about, what do you think about this particular thing? What would Jesus say? Hmm, I've got another question for you. Answering questions with questions. Let me tell you what the real question is. And I think that's what the church has got to figure out how to do. When the world asks a question, let's not have the answer. Let's show them what the real question really is. And listen, this is where we can find a lot of unity because everywhere we go, the world is asking a myriad of questions. We have an opportunity to redirect the question and to express and to reveal a different kingdom than this fleshly kingdom. Well, what is a crisis? Well, I'm going to try to get through this kind of quick. So, again, we're going to hearken back on this over the next couple of weeks. But a crisis is a time of intense difficulty or danger that often requires thoughtful yet swift decision-making. Now, I don't expect you to write that down. I just want you to kind of have in your frame of reference of what a crisis is when I refer to it. At the root of every crisis, let me see how I say this. Every crisis that you can imagine all have the same root. Okay? Very few care, very few are even aware of that underlying crisis. So we focus on the ones that the news tells us about. 
as soon as you focus on the cause of that crisis, the world blasts you and tells you to stop talking about it. The, the crisis beneath every other crisis is a more moral crisis. The root cause of every crisis is a moral crisis. Now, that's using the proper definition of crisis. Your bad hair day isn't a crisis. Okay? Now, we call it that because crisis has become so watered down. Or not getting the parking spot that you thought you deserved isn't a crisis. You see it on, online all the time. I'm having a personal crisis. Crisis this. Midlife crisis. We use crisis in every context. But those aren't crisis. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But when we see the result of a moral crisis produces every other sort of crises. And this is how Jesus actually starts the Sermon on the Mount is dealing with proper morality. How to learn to think, how to learn to prioritize, how to learn to process in a world that's not like his character. So behind the Me Too movement is an insatiable lust for sex and control, right? So if you want to focus on the Me Too movement without dealing with the morality of the thing, it'll never be solved. It's going to keep going. It'll just change names. If you think about the financial crisis, it's an inordinate greed for more. If you try to deal with embezzlement, by arresting people, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but if you're going to try to deal with greed by dealing with the crisis, you're never going to, the, the reason that these things exist is because of a moral depravity. There's only one answer to moral depravity. That's the life of Jesus Christ and his model for us. That's it. There is no other cure. Every other cure just bumps it down the road a little bit into the next family, into the next generation. And what we have done is we have compounded generation after generation. And look at what we've done with the place. Worried about war. War's not the problem. The problem is a power-grabbing moral crisis. Just think what a little more self-control or honesty or humility could do and what it could do for us. How would, how would your personal story be different if at certain points in your life you could go back and choose a moral path, the right thing to do, the truth, instead of what the world told you was okay? Moral chaos exists in every one of us. Irrespective of our political party, we can get mad about that if we want to. It doesn't matter because it's not a political issue. It is a moral issue. It is a humanity issue. When we stop living as the workmanship that he created us to live out his good works, that's where the issue is. We are the crisis because we're in crisis. And when it explodes or it erupts, we try to deal with it one-on-one, -on -one, it doesn't work. Because we have relegated Jesus to a subsection of our life instead of allowing him to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what he says to do, that we will do. They will avoid every conflict if we will agree with Jesus. 
Now you will, crises I should say, you will experience conflict, but the conflict exists to reveal the yes, the right, the true. And when the rest of the world would say no to what Jesus says, when they see the flourishing of the Christian, they will look and say, man, maybe I should live the way they live. Why do you live the way you live? And you say, well, you know, I don't you point people to Jesus, not to me. No, Jesus said that they will know you by your good works. You see, the word crisis comes from the Greek word krisis. I know. We should have just said krisis. I don't know why we changed it. Krisis. Uh, Aristotle used it quite often, and, uh, and Aristotle used it to talk about a legal procedure that secured civic order. And before you get caught up in me talking about Aristotle, Jesus also used it several times, specifically in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, when he says, on the day of judgment. Guess what the Greek word for judgment is there? On the day of crisis. On the day where it will be determined what is right and what is wrong, not on a day when you didn't get your way or things weren't comfortable. He also used it in John chapter 5, verse 22, when he pronounces a future judgment that will separate the wicked from the righteous. This is a crisis. That's a day of crisis. But it has already been declared what is right and what is wrong. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And God put a tree there in that garden. And he said, this is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Of right and of wrong. Of the knowledge of knowing between the two. What God gave them was this perfect morality. And what did Adam and Eve do with it? They abused the tree. And they ate it. In doing wrong, now they are in a moral crisis from there on. Trees are often places of judgment. I think of the uh, Judge Deborah in the Old Testament. The Bible says that she would sit under a tree and pronounce her judgments, her, her crises uh, of right and wrong. Who's right and who's wrong. What's true, what's false. I think of Absalom where God used the tree to grab a hold of his head because of his sedition of even his own father and it judged him. The Bible says immediately there in the tree. God even used the tree of the cross to be the perfect example. The right and the wrong, the left and the right. The Jewish word, in, in the Jewish world, the tree often signified judgment. Think about how different the world would be if Adam and Eve had have believed and trusted in the word of God. What was the cause? Was the tree the problem? Was the fruit the problem? No, the problem was their morality and they believed the wrong question. Has God really said? No, they responded to the wrong question. I think it's the same thing that's happening to us today. So the word itself, crisis, has evolved from its original meaning of a judgment regarding right and wrong to a, a change in the course of things. That's what crisis means today. Just a change in the course of things. Anytime you experience change, we're in a crisis. Well, that's not really true. 
And I'm not trying to get you to rewrite definitions or to change the way you use words. And that's not the point. But the point is, as we continually water down what's important, we will water down the remedy. And that is exactly what we have done as a society and as a culture. It's only a problem when we don't know right from wrong. And I can remember back, uh, you know, the older I get, the harder it is to think back. Uh, I say 30 years ago at least, when there started to be this real assault on right and wrong. Moral absolutes. There are no moral absolutes. How many of you remember that? When it was just starting to sink its teeth into schools. Books were starting to be written about, you know, who are you to tell me what's right? And who are you to tell me what's wrong? Well, boy, I wish we hadn't listened. Because now, everybody's right and everybody's wrong. And when we have to pay the consequences for it, everybody has to pay the consequences for it. It's very similar to many Old Testament passages, which is everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Objective reality is gone. Subjective feeling is now the ruler. I mean, get this. I don't, I don't make it fun. I'm just saying this is how we, these are the questions that we're asking now. What gender do you feel like? We have moved from objective reality to subjective feeling. That's, we call it a gender crisis. That's not a crisis. It's only a crisis if we don't know right from wrong. Right? It's a conflict. There's no doubt that there is a conflict there because what people feel is what they feel. But the good news is, is the Word of God has the right and the wrong answer for that. The question is, we don't want to do what God said. We want to do what we feel. And we've been told it's okay. And all it's going to do is to continue to give birth to more crises in our life. The judgment has been set on that. We don't have an opioid crisis. We have a conflict that the church is mandated to help lead the way out. We know what is right and what is wrong. That's been said. But we've set the standard of God aside because He's too intrusive. We don't like what God says. I'm telling you, if we raise the standard that God has already given, our crises will begin to clear up. It's a moral issue. When self is put in discomfort, that now is a crisis. And I don't know what to do. Well, what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is, Yes, you do know what to do. You just don't want to do it. That's the moral crisis. So Jesus gives us eight, maybe nine different statements to help us to clarify the moral issues of his day and ours because they're always going to be the same moral issues. And I think about, you know, just... 
I'm in a real crisis right now, not knowing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just think about the uh, comments on social media and how often the news use them now. If you see that, you, I don't know, you may not watch the news. Every now and then you turn on the news and, and they'll show what people are tweeting or what Facebook comments are saying, like, like that matters. I mean, just because it fit their whatever, uh, they want to use people that aren't experts. Because when people see that, they're like, oh, that was my opinion too. Oh, my opinion. And it just gives gravity to individual opinions. We've all turned into experts just because we have an opinion about something. Listen, if, and I don't, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you what I think about it uh, because that's not my point in being here. Is, and there is not a greater illustration than our debates on coronavirus. I mean, everybody is an expert because of something they read or somebody that they knew's experience. And we demand to be heard on it. This is just proof of how much we have exalted our own opinion. I think about this. I saw that not long ago on the, new, on the news. It was an advertisement for, a, for the news. The 6 o'clock news. You know, I, can I just be funny for a second? I remember when the news had... 30 minutes at 6 and 30 minutes at 11. And they had to look for what news is newsworthy. Now it's 24 hours a day. they got to drum stuff up to be able to produce that much news in a day. All right, so back to this. For the 6 o'clock news, it was, hey, tune in to such and such at such and such, and we'll change your mind. I, I, I couldn't believe that the news anchor said, we'll change your mind. Well, they don't even know what my mind is. I want to watch. I dare you to change my mind. I did it. In this moral confusion, we're often tossed about in a sea of subjectivity, unable to address sudden changes in circumstances or in society. You know, should I embrace transgenderism or should I insist on traditional gender categories? Listen, without a standard regarding morality, all we have are debates. That's all we have is debates and debates will divide us. We've lost the idea of crisis. Well, te technically crisis hasn't been lost, it's been replaced one writer said, we've replaced the tree of knowledge of good and evil with the forest of individual opinion. One person cries out, face the facts. Another person cries out, that's fake news because it doesn't fit what they want to be true. We need a standard of justice to determine what is right and what's wrong. And uh, the American diplomat and politician Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, everyone is entitled to his own opinions but everyone is not entitled to their own facts. And I believe that's true. If we don't get the moral facts straight, then the variety of crisis will compound. And that's, to me, that will cause us as a, even the body of Christ, it will cause us to cease from flourishing, which was the whole point. So how can it be resolved? Well, this is, this is urgent not only because of the crisis out there in the world, but also because of the crisis in here in our hearts. We've settled for doing instead of being. 
We don't look at people's integrity. We look at the things that they say and the things that they do, not who they really are. I could use illustration after illustration of people that we thought were the best people among us, and they fail and fail hard because of a moral crisis. Not because what they did wasn't good. Aristotle actually said that everybody can do good from time to time. Sometimes you just get lucky. But goodness must come intentionally, and intentionality comes from integrity, built day after day of making the right decisions when crises come into your life. I've got a list that I was going to kind of go through, but I feel like I'm being personal enough already of people every day. It's someone else, it's another good person on TV that fell flat on their face. That we said, man, they were only so good. What happened to them? Like all of a sudden, they fail. No, they've been falling a long time. We just couldn't see it. There's never been a day where the contrast should be starker between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. We always knew that the world would be here. Scripture even declares that. We knew that crises are going to continue to mount or conflicts are going to continue to compound but I really believe that it is the ministry of the church to be able to show the beacon of light to show the world the way out but instead when the world looks at the church they're simply looking in a mirror tempted to make decisions based on how we feel and if you consult with the world the world will tell you that's the way you make decisions how do you feel what do you think follow your heart but I'm telling you that is terrible advice the only reason the world offers that advice is because underneath that statement is it's demonic and it is trying its best to destroy your life and I'm going to stand here today and tell you that while so many sins have, have really become commonplace today, talk about things we've never talked about before, people confessing and agreeing that they were a part of things that used to, people were embarrassed about. We've pulled a lot of that stuff out of the closet and everybody kind of brags about what they do and how they get away with it. People lobbying for recognition of things that not long ago were kept in closets. And I'm telling you, it will destroy you and it is destroying us. Because Jesus has made it very clear how his people are to live. Now, not just his people, but the people that were created to be his, that were created his workmanship, his own hands. That's not just Christian people, that's people in general. And then he tells us how to live. We thumb our nose at obeying him and wonder why we move from crisis to crisis. I, in all of this to be said I know how I sound but I'm saying I have never been filled with more hope because the contrast has become so stark that the people of God have such a platform to be different and that's what I'm challenging you for today is it's time for us to find our resolve and our revival and to say thus saith the Lord not how do you feel. 
or my advice to you is I want to be careful because I don't want to offend. We don't want to offend. But Jesus says the cross of Jesus Christ is offensive because it has clearly come down on the judgment of right and wrong. Okay, almost, almost finished for the day, okay? When Jesus is appreciated for what he does, you know, feeding and miracles and all those sorts of things, but not what he teaches, uh, we are in for it. And we still have an appreciation. I mean, even atheists will say, I've been reading this week, multiple atheists are saying Jesus was so far ahead of his time in his teaching and his care for social justice and his feeding poor people and taking care of orphans and all of these sorts of things. He was so far ahead of his time. But when you start talking about Jesus having, you know, being co-equal with God and you start talking about Jesus being the ransom for sin and you start talking about the cross of Jesus Christ and the conversation really shuts down then. Oh, we appreciate what Jesus did but not who Jesus is because after all, who is Jesus? Well, let me get to the Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> the sermon opens with a series of declarations, uh, beatitudes. Now, they, they all call for goodness. Uh, and beatitude is a strange and compelling word. I'll, I want to spend a moment there because all of my life almost I have heard beatitude. And it's like the attitudes that you should be. Right? I think that's what most people think. What are the beatitudes? Were there the attitudes that you shouldn't just have and feel? They're attitudes that you should do. Uh, but that's not even close. In fact, that's not even in the ballpark. Now, I think that that's probably tr maybe true in its essence. But that's not what the word means. Well, it, it's true, of, of course, but it's, it comes from the Latin word beatitudo. Isn't that great? Just learned some Latin today. Beatitudo. And that word comes from a Greek word, markarios, which means blessed or favored or flourishing. So truly, what this passage of Scripture is saying is that if you want to know how to flourish in humanity, here's eight pieces of advice for you. If you want to learn how to flourish in moral humanity, if you want your very best life in this world, here's what it looks like. So many people, though, want to flourish only here. When if you look at the promise of each one of these declarations, the promise for flourishing is in a whole different kingdom. So I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to think about where the tension is in your life. If you want to flourish in this kingdom, you're going to be in conflict. But if your goal is to flourish in his kingdom, worry no longer. He has already declared it. So just very quickly, and I won't have to say this every week, you go from if this, then that, right? If you're poor in spirit, then you will see you'll be in the kingdom of God. Uh, so we're almost like this. If you 
practice this now in eternity you will have this some people believe that it is a if you do this now immediately you get the payoff in in certain limited ways I think it should be translated in both ways that if you will follow the advice of Jesus Christ and, and nay commandments of Jesus Christ you will experience flourishing here because of the kingdom of God and you will experience a flourishing there because of the kingdom of heaven there is both a now and later promise connected with this moral integrity so the very first one is seeing the crowds went up on the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him he has opened his mouth and taught them saying the very first truth that Jesus taught publicly was blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven very quickly I'm going to go through this the poor in spirit, some people say, well, Jesus was talking about poor people here. And while he did appreciate ministry to the poor, he adds in the spirit on it, which means that he's not talking about economically. He's talking about humility. Poor in spirit. Now, that doesn't mean those who have very little spirituality in them. What he is saying is people who recognize that they have very little to offer God. That's what it means. Blessed are you when you recognize through humility that you have very little to offer. In fact, you are in the deficit. Because you are willing then to say, you know what, I'm not thinking about myself at all. This is extreme selflessness. When you are poor in spirit, humility gives birth, birth to selflessness. Do you know what selflessness gives birth to? Generosity. Do you know why you can be so generous with yourself and your time and your attention, your love? you know why you can be so generous? Because you already recognize yours is the kingdom of God. That's why. Because everything that matters belongs to His kingdom. And you have Him. So what in the world does the world have to offer you? So prefer rather than being rich in the Spirit or even being broken in the Spirit. Because I can tell you, if you, you know, you're broken in the Spirit, who are you still focusing on? You? Now, the poor in Spirit can't focus on them. The poor in Spirit only, only looks up. If you look in the mirror, you will only see yourself and you will compare yourself. If you look at others to be poor in spirit, you will compare yourself to others and you will either grow envious, jealous, or paranoid. But when you look up, it takes care of all of the rest of that. So this is where we start. If you want to flourish, I mean really flourish, the first moral decision of your life is to recognize you have nothing to offer. What's the do part? Well, the do part is selflessness that leads to generosity. When we hear generosity, we automatically think of money, but that's not what Jesus is necessarily talking about. What Jesus is talking about is being able to give yourself entirely because you have set your treasure in heaven, which he's going to say just in the next chapter. Now, I also want you to notice uh, maybe two things here. And then we're going to be done. The first thing is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? If you keep going, blessed are those who mourn. If you look at every one of these, and it may not be as obvious in English, it is incredibly obvious in the original language. 
They're all plural. They're all plural. So when Jesus is giving his moral or his morality to us, he is saying that we need each other in order to be able to achieve that communal morality. That the church of Jesus Christ should be able to depend on one another. I need you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I need you. I need you to point out things in my life where I am not poor in spirit. We should aspire to people, to be with people, to talk to people, to have people investing in our life. When we recognize that there's someone who is poor in spirit, we should get as close to them as we can because as we aspire to them, we can become like that. We become like who you're around, right? This is why Paul says bad company corrupts good what? Morals. If you want to spend all your time with the world, you're going to start thinking like the world. You want to spend spending time with people uh, who think a particular way, you're going to start thinking a particular way. And you're going to not have really any foundation for it, just the way I feel. It's what people think. So as you spend time with people who are in poor spirit, we develop a culture of poor in spirit, a culture of generosity, a culture of humility. A culture of selflessness. And then I don't have to protect myself anymore. I don't have to worry about what do I think, what do I feel, because I've got nothing to offer. I've just got to worry about looking up and taking every direction from the Lord. Pretty simple. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. But it's the simplest thing you'll ever do. So, blessed, favored, flourishing are those who are selfless. Because they will have the kingdom of God already. Already, this world already has benefits for those who are selfless. But even better, there is another kingdom to come. And we will be able to experience it to the full there. And all of our treasures are already laid up there for us. Folks, don't fall in love with this place. It's going to move from conflict to conflict to crisis to crisis. But the first step of living crisis free is to understand that God has already declared right and wrong. That crisis has not occurred yet. We can still be on the right side of crisis. Just because we have affinities and urges and predispositions and all of those sorts of things does not give us freedom to pursue them so that we can feel good about ourselves or right about our opinion. We listen to the word of God We fall in line with brothers and sisters who are on the same pursuit we are. And together, we reveal the kingdom of God to a world around us that is drowning in crisis. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word today. Oh, and I pray that you would help us to... uh, Help us to repent. (laughs) That's, That's what we need to do. We need to repent. You have already clearly spoke... And we've, we've made you say some other things. We've put words in your mouth and we've spoke for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to reclaim morality. I also ask, Lord, we know that morality has lots of definitions. And so help us to understand as we work through this that, that we can't possibly maintain morality apart from your spirit at work within us. We can't possibly be selfless unless you are selfless in us. We can't possibly be generous unless the great giver lives inside of us. But if we neglect that empowerment, we neglect all of morality. 
So Lord, help us to look up. Help us to look up. Help us to realize that the poor in spirit are the bowed down ones. But not because we're beat down, but because we intentionally land on our knees and look to heaven. Look to the kingdom of God. We pray, Lord, for your forgiveness. We pray for your mercy and your grace. We pray for boldness. We pray for clarity as we go into the world that we would not be combative, that we would not be angry, but we would lovingly, lovingly display your workmanship in a way that causes people to see a flourishing in a world they've never experienced. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you for such extreme clarity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, if you will. I'd like for us, just before we go, if everything's still quiet, nobody, nobody moving just yet, uh, I know it's really easy to get distracted in here, but I'd like for you just to stand. It's easy for me to pray a prayer, but I'd, I'd like for us all to just say, Lord, reveal what you want me to know, what you want me to feel and think about all of this in the Spirit. Lord, help me so that I can process. Where there is, where there is wrong thinking, where there is wrong action, I want to line up with what you have already declared. And so, Lord, reveal to me and I will walk in obedience. I will, I will resist my urges. I will resist my opinions. I will resist my habits. I will resist all of those things, Lord, if you will just clearly teach me what is right so that I won't have to walk it alone. I won't have to make a determination on right and wrong where you have already clearly stated. Once you've prayed, you're free to go. I love you. I thank God for you. I'm so glad that you're here. And I pray that we would all be and reveal a flourishing people. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.